I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello. Hey, Matt. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm okay, actually. How are you? Very well, yes. Just um, had a busy old week and a half. I was at the World Championships up in Glasgow. First ever combined cycling world. So they had all the different disciplines together. Uh, working with the BBC up there, doing a bit of punditry and doing some interviews in the mix zone. That was quite fun. I was taking, doing your kind of job, chatting hmm. to some of the riders and uh, doing a few links to camera, which took about 100 takes. <laughs> Did it work having all the events together for the first time? It looked good. Uh, it was brilliant. It felt yeah, like a mini, a mini games. Yeah. Um, you know, way more pros and cons. The downside of it, from looking back now, in the velodrome, because they had 70, um, 70, 70 medals, or gold medals on offer wow. with all the Paralympic events, it was 48 Paralympic events, 22 able-bodied ones. Because there were so many, they couldn't fit in the medal ceremony in the track centre. So they took the medalists next door into the, it was like a kind of arena next to the velodrome, and they had a podium in there, and they just... As the races were on, you would see in the background on the screen riders getting their medals with no, you wouldn't hear the the national anthem. They weren't oh, singing it in front of the crowd. So, yeah, you got your rainbow jersey in a little quiet room in the middle of nowhere, which was a pity. But, you know, I guess they, they'd thought it through and there was no other way. And it's, I think, the the, the benefits outweighed the, mm-hmm. the, um, the downside. But, yeah. It was a shame. If that was your first rainbow jersey, to not have your family and fans and everybody. Yeah, cheering. that is a bit tough. I remember those moments well, and it's yeah, they're pretty special. So, but apart from that, it was it was brilliant. And everywhere you went, there were people on bikes in the city centre. Oh, brilliant. You know, Vanderpool's win in the men's road race was making the front pages because he. Um, I don't know if you heard he when the race was stopped because of protesters. He found himself caught short, and he. He went and knocked on a door of a person's house just randomly on the route and said, can I use your toilet? And apparently it was a number two. So the, the headline was um, Vanderpool Poo- Van as opposed to <laughs> Vanderpool. Great, great daily record uh, journalism there. That's great good, though. Writing. Yeah. That's good. It gets, so, gets it in, in, in yeah. you know, the sport gets further yeah. um, attention in different ways than that. I would have gone for a Chateau Van der Poel, but, you know. <laughs> Did you get out to Edinburgh in the end or not? Because I saw your, your family yeah. hopped across. Or, yeah. yeah, so I, well, I went back to Edinburgh to see my folks. Um, my mum had a bit of a fall, so she she broke her arm, which was, oh God. wasn't great. Um, she okay now? But, well, yeah, she's not great. But anyway, um, so I went back to see my family on um, Friday, Saturday, but, I didn't go through to watch the road race start. I just I was working from Glasgow the whole time. But I went to the yeah, started in the velodrome, um, went to the Flatland BMX and did some interviews there, watched that for the first time. That was incredible. Went to the artistic cycling and the cycle ball. Yeah. Saw some of that. Um went did to the BMX to sneak, racing. Sneak any fringe on your visit to no, no. No. I wonder if you pretty- just managed to just sneak a little show in somewhere. Yeah, got it. Because after off the back of all these 
um, podcast. We've had all these amazing people that have got shows on, and I could yeah. just snuck in the back in a number of different shows. But yeah, next year, not. next year, yeah, we'll have to be. Um, so speaking of now. speaking of guests, who's our guest today? So this is our twentieth episode, which seems ridiculous. Actually, I don't know quite how it's come around to that. It's just sort of by the seat of your pants. I was going to. I should. I should have got a little party popper steamer. Thing this is the most song. underwhelming twentieth birthday celebration. <laughs> but yeah, 20, 20 episodes of doing this, we actually thought because a few people had said they'd want to hear from us as well. Um, so for us to chat a bit and be guests and turn the spotlight on each other, um, which I think we sometimes do with our guests on anyway, but maybe just do that a little bit more just as a one-off hmm. and then and then back to the normal format next week. Um, Self-indulgent. It's like the episodes <laughs> in The Simpsons or these long-running shows where they do these kind of uh, little montages and they turn the, they turn the lens back on themselves a bit as well. So, what are we going to talk about? Well, sports, I guess, in sports, both in different good, sense. That's a good starting um, point. Because yeah. everyone knows about your – I mean, we've talked about how, how you began and the inspired by ET, uh, the BMX riding, and, and that and the pathway, and everyone obviously knows the success you had along But not everybody way. knows the success of Matt Magendi. So, no, but I was, I was so let's start with Matt, shall we? Let's start with you. Let's turn it back to it's, you. It's very, it's very limited. Very limited. But where – so you – I mean, you're a – a sports journalist you're a broadcaster you that's your living that's how you make your living now did you ever at any point start out thinking sport would be a profession did you was that your aim to begin with or think, was it I always about the writing I, I love sport I've always loved sport I love playing it love writing about it talking about it etc uh, but it was really quick I began to realize that while I was okay at, at sports good enough at school and afterwards I was never it was never going to take me anywhere beyond that kind of thing i think i remember trying at trials at rugby at, at university on like the opening day having come from school and I, I was just utterly broken my whole body was broken i thought right okay that's it and um, never never doing that again but there were different moments you know like i love still doing sport now but there was never really a, a, a time when i was going to get to any any higher level but i always wanted to be immersed in sport so as a result then i took the path pretty early on about 15 i think which is quite rare for people. I knew that I wanted to become a sports journalist and go down that route. My my uncle always says he's the reason. I did two bits of work experience, one at his solicitor's office, which was unbelievably boring. And then one, at, we lived in Ireland at the time and did like their version of Grandstand and worked on that program for a week. And it was just so good. I had so much fun. I just thought this is, this is the world I want to be in. And, and from that point onwards, kind of worked towards being in sport in, 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 in some sense, whether it be writing stuff or talking about it. And, and that was really my path. Who were your broadcasting heroes So who would you, or writing heroes? Who would you have set out and thought, that's who I want to be like? So I guess with the TV, it was Des Lynham because I just thought he was unbelievable. He was just so smooth and funny and, you know, all those sort of different lines like, shouldn't you be at work or stuff like that. And, <laughs> and, and I always used to always used to like those things. My parents um, got uh, the Daily Telegraph, the paper they had when we finally moved to England because I lived abroad most of my life. And then we moved that. So I read a lot of those writers, people like... Um, Robert Phillip was a guy I liked, and then and then Paul Hayward I read read a lot, who's recently sort of stepped away, but he, he was a lovely writer. So there's there's so many people I loved reading, and I was that was the most best way of learning was to read all these people, um, and I loved reading the Sunday Times. I used to enjoy always the Paul Kimmage interviews and David Walsh's stuff, and obviously he's still going now. Um, I was so yeah, inspired by Paul Kimmage's um, 
Rough Ride. I remember uh, getting yeah. that book. My, my really? dad got me Rough Ride and he got me uh, Greg LeMond's biography. Yeah, um, I read both of those. Yeah. And he got with me at the same time. He said, right, I want you to read this one first. And, you know, the Greg LeMond one about all the things that are amazing about the sport and how inspirational it is and how great it can be. And then I want you to read this so that you, you understand the, the, the darker side of the sport and therefore you're never ever going to be, you know, naive or get drawn into anything like that at all. And, um, I think I was 14 or 15 at the time and I've never been quite shocked about it, but, but I think it's a good thing to do. I think it's, you know, it's, you're kind of understanding and it's, yeah, it's, it was a, it won loads of awards as well, didn't it? It was, it a, was brilliant. And it was so, it was the first time it felt anyone had been really, truly honest about the mm. whole, the whole thing and just seeing the path he took to get to that point and others around him. I just, and I mean, it's just, he's an excellent writer anyway, but mm. It just, but also it'd been, yeah. it, it took, I think it must have taken a lot of bravery. Yeah. Because, you know, back then it was just this unspoken, mm. you know, it was a European sport. It was, you know, even as a, an English speaking person, you were a, an outsider. So for an outsider to come in and, you know, and try and expose what was going on. I, I remember I was working at the BBC Sport website when early in my career and I went out to the Tour de France and he was a journalist asking the tough questions there. I was a bit sort of fresh face and naive about the whole thing at that point and you know wasn't afraid to ask those questions and he was the one person doing it and he got so much crap and vitriol back but he stood his ground and I was slightly in awe of that. I was super impressed that you know he was willing to lay it on, on the line because he believed in in that and wanted to expose the wrongdoing which obviously took took further time beyond then mm. so in terms of all the athletes me must have interviewed some pretty impressive athletes over yep. the years who's your favorite um you know who, who have you enjoyed chatting to the most is that it's so difficult that... to answer because i love i love so many different interviews i find boxers fascinating because there's always like a sort of often a darker story there so or interesting background when boxing was their savior i find that interesting um god it's so hard there's so many good ones i tell you in terms of cycling um i used to find bradley wiggins a fascinating interview he was incredibly hard to get hold of but then once he got him and I don't know how his mind was working at certain points, but he would just go off on f fantastic tangents. So if you got him, he was very good. Um, I like people like like yourself who 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 think beyond, who've got a life beyond the sports, who had like a background beforehand. So you're you're a good example, Andy Murray, a good example that you know there's something beyond that. There's bigger picture than just um, cycling around you know, the circle in, or hitting a ball over a tennis net or whatever it is. You mean, my, are you referring to my interest in pouring coffee? Is that, that interesting? <laughs> it's got so much more to it, you know. <laughs> no, but, they, but, but actually how grounded you are and you've got a worldly view and that sort of thing. I find athletes like that who who can look beyond their little because you can so be so blinkered as an elite sportsman or so it seems you know this yeah. world you just get up and you're working to do that so when people have stuff beyond that is is fantastic it's i i feel sorry for a lot of the sense patronizing to say i feel sorry for them but these days because it seems to be there is a conveyor belt there is a clear pathway <laughs> there is the funding certainly in cycling you have facilities the coaching the funding is there so as soon as you're identified as a talented prospect age 16 17 then there is you're kind of on this conveyor belt and mm -hmm. you do miss out i think on life experiences so the reason that i think I, i've had a quite a good perspective i hope on on life and i was able to deal with pressures later in my career was because purely because i'd lived a different life before i became you know a, like i was 20 28 when i became olympic champion 
the first time. I was 26 when I won my first world title. So it took a lot longer yeah. because there wasn't that that clear pathway. So I went to university. I'd lived this a normal-ish life at the same time as training part-time. And I didn't really commit or I did commit, but I didn't have that opportunity to commit properly until I was in my mid-20s. So you had that balance. And you see some of the riders that come into the program, the British cycling program, who haven't been in there since they were 16. They've come in a slightly different route. And they always tend to have, as you say, an interesting interesting outlook and, and can have can it can step back from it and understand actually do you know what we're just riding bikes in circles here it's not mm. we're not curing cancer um <laughs> you know it's it's as long as you can do it well and have fun with it that's great but try not to lose perspective i wonder when you didn't have that world title until 26 was there any point that you toyed with walking away from it and doing a, a normal job or whatever or did you always still have the belief or there was enough I, there I just thought I'll keep doing this as long as I can before I yeah. get figured out, and they they, they they get someone who knows what they're doing and is a bit faster than me. But I was I just loved it. I thought every year I thought this is an extra bonus. I thought I would do it for a year or two, yeah, almost like a gap year thing. Um, the aim was to get to the Commonwealth Games in in Kuala Lumpur in 1998 to represent Scotland to get the tracksuit to say to make my mark, say I represent my country, and anything on top of that was a bonus. And then it was Sydney 2000. That was the next kind of short term carrot. And then it became, oh, we've got silver in Sydney in the team sprint. And then it was like, well, I wonder if I could do it individually. I wonder if I could win a medal at world level on my own. And it, it, so it was just a very kind of gradual mm-hmm. process. But yeah, I think at the heart of it, you've got to love it. You've got to really enjoy it all and, and be doing it for yourself and not for your coaches or for your mum or dad or family, you know. Is that the postman? That's the dog joining That's us. That's your guard for, dog. For whatever uh, reason, I'm not quite sure why. But, um, <laughs> so, I, I, yeah, I, I, just... I, I did you, do, do you, you don't have any regrets then with the success you've had. You must be able to look back. Let me just let the dog out one second. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> so that's a 14-year-old invasion dog. and a dog. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I wonder, with, with the success then you have, do you have a career of no regrets or are there bits that you look back on yeah. and do regret? Or No, I, I no. think you can't regret um, because everything led to even if the bits that were yeah. the bits that were disappointing or frustrating or weren't working out you, it's a cliche now and it's all with hindsight and it was terrible at the time when you've got an injury or when your form isn't there or when you're doubting yourself or when you lose you know you lose a race that mm-hmm. you were hoping to win it's horrible but you've got to go through that and you, you only see it afterwards but even down to the fact that I think well god imagine if there'd been an indoor velodrome and coaching and all the infrastructure that's there that was there at the end of my career. If they'd had that when I was 18, I could have been winning gold medals at the Olympics when I was 20 and I would have, you know, I could have won eight, nine medals if I was lucky. But you, you think, well, do you know what? I probably wouldn't have kept going into my mid thirties. Yeah. I probably wouldn't because ultimately you can only, no matter how much you love it, you can only do it for so long. And I think that I kept going because I could see progression and I was enjoying mm-hmm. it. I think if you if you hit the top when you're 20, 21, it's very hard to maintain that for 10, 12, 15 years. Um, and it, you know, that's why you look at these athletes in different sports that can maintain, that have hit the heights at a young age and they can maintain it for many, many years. It's incredible. But equally, I think it takes its toll on the mentally and, and emotionally. I think you, it's hard to be to have lived your life and to only know one thing, to be the best in the world at one thing for so long. Whereas for me, I felt like I was chasing it for the majority of my career and then was good at it for the very back end of it. Um, and I kind of appreciated it in many mm-hmm. ways. And also when when you get to that point where you are 
you know, you're not just um, winning local races. You suddenly, you know, you're on the, the pages of, you know, the, the general newspapers or you're on the, the news um, at the Olympics and, and the public start to know who you are. You're a bit older, a bit more mature, and you're able to cope with it a bit better. You've got yeah. a better family structure around you that, you know, a bit more equipped to deal with it. You're not just a, a teenager or, a, a, you know, in your early 20s where it can all mess you up. So, yeah, no, I wouldn't change anything. I, genuine, and that sounds a bit corny. But, no, no, that's nice. I think yeah. that's good because people think of you just with the successes because people don't know the sort of hard work. But there must have been, I guess, mishaps along the way, uh, comical or, or oh, otherwise. I would imagine there's a, a fair catalogue, is there? Many. And it's, <laughs> it's because the Olympics were a success. And people often just tune in for the Olympics. They're not the hardcore cycling fans. Yeah. So you just see the wins and you think, well, it's this linear, you know, plateau of, of, you know, success. Everything's going really easily, but it's not. I mean, in cycling, crashes are a massive part of it. Yeah. I crashed. I learned to crash as a kid in BMX. You'd crash probably every second or third weekend. You'd come home with your elbows skinned and, you know, you didn't have a little plastic trophy to take home with you. You'd be, you'd be sitting empty handed <laughs> in the back of the car, you know, ruining the mistakes that you'd made or the bad luck you had. And I think, it, but BMX taught me so much. And I, 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 you know, resilience is a big thing these days. And we talk yeah. about it a lot and how do we build resilience and how do we, with our kids and ourselves. But I think being taught that literally you have to physically bounce back. You know, it doesn't matter how good you are at BMX, you will have bad luck, you will fall off, you'll get knocked off. So I, yeah, I, I, and I think you only go back to it if you really want to do it. So no mm. one's forcing you to do it. So you have to say, right, I want to get back on the bike. First of all, it can be scary when you've had a big fall. You've got to get back on the bike as soon as possible. You know, at first, after you, have a, you have a big crash, and then the, the midweek you go to go and do some practice at the local track, and you sit at the start ramp and you think, "Oh, do I really want to do this?" And then you get overcome it, and then you go, "Yeah, I'm okay." You know, it's and it, it's you lose a bit of skin, but it you know it heals over and you'll be all right. So BMX taught me how to fall. Um, track cycling, it's few and far between but when they when they happen they can be quite nasty and you, you well the do. noise of it when i'm working yeah. there in the middle of the velodrome the noise when people go down it's just horrific the, it's the sound of bikes carbon yeah. splintering yeah. and and the and as you're sliding along the ground you know you're, you're doing 70 miles an hour sorry 70 k's an hour say so you know 40 odd miles an hour and you're just sliding 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 and the best the, the least impact is when you keep sliding and, and you don't hit anything hard but that means that you're basically losing skin continuously as you're sliding. So you, you lose that layer of lycra in you know a fraction of a second, and then it's bare skin against wood, and it, it's a horrible feeling as you and you sort of, you're trying to not stay on the hot spot and you know burn one part of your body. So you're rolling around, <laughs> and you can you can finish a, a, a big crash, and you've lost all the skin down one side, the whole way down your legs, the whole way down your arms, your back, your hips, and then you've got to try and sleep that night in your hotel if you're racing the next day, and you've got these open wounds. And usually you get these tiny little splinters you've got to pick out. So it's it's it can be pretty horrible. But um, thankfully, it's not a common thing. And the reason you have you don't have brakes on track bikes is you don't have, or it reduces the risk of crashes happening. Yeah. People don't yeah. suddenly stop in front of you. But very rarely, very rarely, you have these horror crashes on the track where really bad things happen, far less than on the road. But it does happen on the track. And often, or with, you know, very rarely it happens, but of the ones that have happened, big splinters so big parts of the track splintering not just little tiny splinters pieces of wood breaking off as the riders are sliding across it and then picking it up into their bodies so the worst one or well the first one sorry would have been 1996 in Meadowbank Velodrome an outdoor track in Edinburgh and I was involved in the race um, 
I was in second place when the last corner was about 10 of us in the race. It's a scratch race. I touched wheels, went down, and about three or four guys went into the back of me. And one of it, one of them was Jason Queeley, who went on to become kind of a mentor and a teammate in later years. And he slid along on his back and picked up two pieces of wood. And one went into um, sort of just under his rib cage or under the muscles in his rib cage. And one went, a shorter one that was about maybe two or three inches long, went directly towards his heart. So he had an 18-inch piece of wood in his back, which they had to cut open and, and sort of pull it out. They couldn't just drag it back out because it was a broken bit of wood. But the second piece they had to be much more careful with because it was so close to his heart. And he was in intensive care for 10 days in Edinburgh. Um, just horrendous. And I remember falling and hitting the deck and being in a lot of pain and hearing someone screaming. And, the, you know, the, the two little St. John's ambulance men sort of <laughs> dropping their sandwiches and trying to run over. <laughs> and this guy shouting, I've got half the effing track in my back. And I remember thinking, I bet he's not as bad as me. And I looked across <laughs> and I, I saw, this, saw this bit of wood sticking out of his skin suit. I thought, oh my God. I was like, yeah, go, go to him first. <laughs> I'm fine. You can go. I'm, yeah, I'm not But he, he amazingly recovered, didn't he? He was. Uh, so he was, yeah, that was his first year of proper racing. He yeah. was 1995, sorry, 1996. First year of proper racing. And he went on four years later to become Olympic champion. In many ways, that crash set him on that path because yeah. he was doing sprinting. He was doing Kieran racing, bunch races at that time. And after that crash, he said, I'm never doing a bunch race again. I'm never going to put myself at risk. So I'm going to do races against the clock where just you on the track, you know, on the black line, the bottom of the track. And and then, yeah, four years later, Olympic kilo champion. That's brilliant. That's a great mm. story. Amazing. The one I remember is the Malaysian guy. I can't know how to say his first name, but Awang, I think, is the surname. Yeah, like? Azizul Awang. Yeah, wait, wait, that, that's that's going a, a few f- few years further on. But again, a similar, yeah. I mean, that, that went viral, didn't it? Everyone it went did. That, it yeah. did. So that was 2010 or 2011, yeah. World Cup in Manchester. Um, yeah, go on to, well, if, you, if you're interested, if you've <laughs> not, not got a full stomach, um, type in Awang, A-W-A-N-G, Splinter. And the images will pop up. Were you in that think. race? No. Yeah. So there's a bit, yeah. I guess it's kind of like, hmm. Wait, I was in this one too. <laughs> it's all my fault. Um, but I didn't. So there's a Kieran final, and I was at the front, and as we came in the last corner, and I had this like you're talking about that noise of the impact as as the bikes hit the deck, and you know you sometimes hear that, and you obviously keep going. You don't look back. Across the line, I won the race, and I was like hands off the bars, celebrating, waving to the home crowd. And it's at that point you, reach, you you turn around to sort of shake hands with the guy that was second and the guy that was third. And I looked to my right and there was nobody there. And I looked to my left and there was nobody there. And I came back around on this a victory lap and I looked down and there was all this carnage of guys running with their bikes, trying to get across the finishing line because <laughs> I was the only finisher. The other five riders had all decked it. So there were still two medals for off, up, up, up for grabs. So they're running with these, you know, just parts of bikes. <laughs> it's like a kind of what happened next in uh, question of sport. And um, the, the Malaysian rider, Azizul Awang, he, there was still, a, I think he got second or third. He got a medal, but the coach just put him back on his bike, gave him a shove, and he sort of rode the last half lap. And he's shouting as he's doing it, sort of screaming. And, and he crossed the finishing line and collapsed off the bike. And they looked down and he had a piece of wood sticking straight through his car remember, like, yeah. like, like a cocktail sausage you know that it was just the whole way through so the bit of wood was catching the bike every pedal rev as he was going you know at that last hundred meters and they would take him to hospital and yeah he was in it was took him months before he was back on a bike really? and, you know the, the question whether they would ever get back to 
to riding properly ever again. Um, missed a main artery by millimeters apparently, and but they to, basically had to open the muscle up to get this bit of wood out. Horrendous. And what, what I think was amazing, so he was already a big star back then. He was a, a, a world medalist in the sprint and the Kieran. He was known as the pocket rocket man. He's, yeah. he's a huge, huge character in Malaysia. He used to do, used to pull wheelies across the finishing line, even though that lost him a couple of inches of um, lunging for the line. He used to love doing wheelies when he crossed the finishing line. Anyway, um, he's still going and he's actually on the best form of his life. He's, he's now doing times that are faster than he was wow. 10 years ago. Um, so yeah, he's he bounced back and he won an Olympic silver in Rio. Um, he was he made the final the Kieran in London 2012, and he's been world champion as well. So did you ever get little... speared by a bit of track, or did oh, you avoid no, that? Thankfully. Just That's apart from little no. splinters. Little splinters. I, I found one that came out my my bum cheek um, about six months ago. I had this sort of <laughs> spot on my on my on my bum. I was like, oh, it's like sort of a red spot, and I was scratching it and scratching it, and then it felt like it go pop, and I looked down. And a little piece of black. How long wood. has that been there? Nineteen ninety-two, I reckon it was. <laughs> wow. Meadowbank. So I crashed, and I had this. I had a few splinters in my hip, but that was from, uh, yeah, what's that? Nearly 30, 31 years ago. So this bit of wood eventually found its way out. My body rejected it. Took all that time to get it out. But have you got um, it in your trophy cabinet? I should have kept it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think my wife would have been very happy. But, um, but yeah, these are really rare things that you know. It, it's it, it doesn't happen very often. There's you get these freak ones where riders will fall over the fence into the crowd. That was a yeah. horrendous one that happened in uh, in London as part of the Commonwealth Games last year. But it's it's a relatively safe environment. The velodrome, you know, the roads tend to have more frequent crashes and often bigger and even out training, you know, obviously with, with motorized traffic around, it can be sketchy, but on the whole, it's, it's quite, I've just, I painted a terrible picture of, of cycling. No, not at all. <laughs> I, I'm actually, when I watch it, because it's just so close and the speed are at, it, it always surprises me that there aren't more, any more accidents. And actually when the accidents do happen, that mostly people just slide along on their bum and you see them with, you know, the, the, the burnt skin or whatever. Mm. On the most part, that does tend to be most of it, doesn't it? It does. I mean, actually thinking back now, talking about riding on the road and dangers of riding on the road, 99 or maybe 2000, we went out to Perth, Australia, and we were out on the road training, just me and one of my teammates, Andy Slater, riding on a, 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 a dual or a, a, a dual carriageway, you know, it was two lanes, very quiet out there, very few cars. We were riding two abreast, which is perfectly within the, the yeah. laws out there. And this car came up behind us and started blowing the horn. And we sort of, First of all, I thought it was someone we knew that was just taking the mickey. And we looked around, this guy was blowing the horn and sort of shouting. We couldn't hear what he was saying, but he was shouting. So we just, we, just, we stayed. So I thought, well, what's his problem? There's a clear lane. You know, it wasn't like there was nowhere for him to go. He could overtake. And he, he just sat behind us and kept blowing the horn. So eventually, we sort of moved over a bit. And then he came along right next to us, squeezed past us. The wing mirror almost sort of hit Andy. And, uh, and he shouted abuse at us and then drove off, you know, accelerated off and um, revved the engine and went off he went anyway about a mile down the road there was a set of traffic lights and there were quite a few cars parked up you know at the red light so we're rolling along we see him in the distance and andy goes i'm gonna i'm gonna have a word with him you know what's his problem what's you know what's going on here so andy goes went down the this driver's side with the open window to say, okay say what's all that about you know what you, what's your problem and as he as he broke the sort of cycle up the side of the car this guy opened the car door, knocked him off his bike. He jumped out the car, got a, an extendable metal baton with this big metal ball on the end of it, like a proper weapon, 
and he whacked him on the head with it, cracked his helmet open, started start hitting him. And then all these people jumped out of other cars in a kind of, whoa, 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 whoa. And this guy jumps back in the car. He was only like about 20, 21. Jumped back in the car, shouting and swearing, and drove off. And we were standing there like, going, what the hell just happened? Just and a lunatic. Absolutely. So it happened that there was a police station just across from these traffic lights. And um, so we just rolled straight across this police station and gave a, a you know, this report of what just happened. Anyway, it made the news and the local newspaper came around and Andy had like a big bruise on his arm and he had yeah. holding this helmet that split in two. And the guy, so like about a month before that, there'd been this um, ban on those type of weapons that like they were illegal to, 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 to own them. So this guy realized what he'd done realized i've just hit someone with you know this this illegal weapon so he drove straight to another police station and handed it in and said i'm just handing this in as part of the amnesty kind of thing and said oh I'm, i might have i might have had to use it and you know this thing so anyway he got arrested and, and wow um yeah okay talk but we're yeah andy was in the local newspaper with this um broken bike helmet and a big bruise on his arm so yeah be careful out there, folks. Have you, you had many, have you had many run-ins with uh, cars on the roads, or for the most part? I mean, this country gets better, doesn't it? Or? It's you hope you hope it does. It's yeah. I think we're it's getting busier out there. There's more traffic. Yeah. Um, everybody's in a hurry. Everybody's you know in their own little world. They're stressed. They're they're grumpy, and it, nobody. The, the difficulty is trying to see the world from the other person's perspective. So when you're in your car and you're in a hurry, and there's a couple of cyclists wobbling up a hill in front of you, it's thinking well. They're not doing it on purpose. They're they're out having a ride. They you know they have the right to be able to get out and ride their bikes and get from A to B without being hit by a car. But equally, I think when you're out on your bike, I always try to think right, be aware of other people. And if you can communicate, I think it helps mm -hmm. because people then they see you as a human being, and it's yeah. actually all right. Okay, he's giving me a thumbs up. Sorry, you know, sorry if you had to sit by me for that half a mile there because you couldn't overtake. Appreciate your patience. You know, it, we shouldn't have to say thanks for not killing yeah. me, but it's. I think it's always good to. Yeah. It's always good to try and just. You know, we're all people. We're not. We're not drivers or cyclists or taxi drivers or white van men or whatever. We're just people trying to do our job, trying to get around, trying to do it in the easiest, safest way we can. And sometimes I think it just. I think the media does tend to fuel this this kind of pit one against the other sort of thing. Yeah, because it's great for the, it's clickbait, isn't it? You know, lots of people out. Angry and, and and there's a lot of angry cyclists because it's bloody terrifying. It's terrifying when when a two and a half ton metal box comes whizzing past you mm. and you think, well, if you hit me, I could be dead. If I hit you, I'm going to put a slight scratch in your car. So yeah. I think that's that, it's it's through multiple bad experiences that cyclists tend to get the fear, and the fear then comes out in an emotional way of anger. And it's you know I think it's quite understandable, but mm. it, I just hope that we can. A, find better ways to get people on bikes, and particularly in city centres around, that they don't have to ride alongside or through motorised traffic. The more segregated bike lanes you have, the easier it is, the safer it is. You know, you look at the way they do it in cities in Europe, it's just, it's an absolute doddle. You, you pop in, you hire a bike for a couple of quid. Mm. You don't need to have a helmet on because you're riding about 10 miles an hour. There's no motorised traffic around. You drop the bike off at the next place, you get to your destination. Yeah, It's easy and it works, you know, and so it's, yeah, I think we are getting better, but it's equally, it's still a long way to go.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I wanted to take you back because I, I think you had, was it the first time you were in a GB vest that you had a, well, was it a sporting misadventure that caused you oh, to have yes. an Injured. Yes. Yeah. What was what? what how did you how did you do the injury in the first place? So I, I my first ever ride for GB was at the Home Worlds in Manchester in 1996, and I was only riding team sprint. And we got to the qualifying ride, and I was doing the first lap, and I came out the start blocks. I got maybe four or five pedals into the first corner. The gun went bang bang, and uh, that was it. Um, Jason Queeley, my old pal who had the splinters back, he. Uh, he pulled his foot out, and you don't get a restart. So we were eliminated. So I, I didn't. That was I only got like about two or three seconds into my uh, into my GB <laughs> debut, and that was it, all done. Um, so then the, the next one was in Moscow about two months later, and that was the European Championships, the under twenty threes. GB only had enough money to send three people, so that was well, we'll just send three riders. You don't need to have coaches and support staff. Just get three riders, get them out there give them some experience, let them see what it's like. And two weeks before, I was in training and I rolled down the ramp into the track centre. And the golden rule is you walk down the ramp, you don't cycle down the ramp because without having brakes on the bikes, there is a risk that you might have to suddenly stop. And if you have to, you can't, and then things can go wrong. So I rolled down the ramp and the fixed wheel, the, the sprocket on the fixed wheel, it, as I pushed back on the pedals to slow down, it unscrewed and I just kind of rocketed down the ramp and then went straight down under the tunnel, tried to steer down the corridor, was going too fast, hit the steps, God. put my hand out to grab the handrail so I didn't smash my face into the steps. And I hit the handrail so hard with my arm, as I grabbed it, I broke my arm. So oh. went to the hospital, got this plaster cast on, they're saying, yeah, there's no way you're going to be doing the, the Europeans in two weeks' time. I was absolutely devastated, and it was, I was so looking forward to it. And the it was Doug Daly was the, the GB manager at that point. He said, well, we've already paid for your flights. We've already paid for the hotel. The visa takes more than 30 days to sort out. So we can't put someone else in for you. We can't even put a coach in. So just go there as a helper, a supporter. You can take the other two riders to the start line. You can fix the bike for them. And I was like, can I take my bike with me just in case I'm, you know, and he goes, well, you know, it's, it's not, it's not policy to send sick or injured riders, but we'll, you know, go on, we'll let you take your bike. But, you know, there's no point in worrying about that. So turned up, I went straight to the mechanic from the Dutch team and I asked him if he had like some clippers and I basically cut the thumb part of the plaster cast off my plaster and then so I could hold the handlebars and it was pretty painful. But I was riding on the kilos, so most of the race, you just do the start where you're pulling hard on the handlebars, then you kind of go into the aero extensions, and most of the weight's taken by your elbows. You don't really need to grip. Mm -hmm. So I thought, I can just do the start. I tried to start, and it was pretty painful, but I thought, may as well give it a go. So I got up and I did the kilo, and I did a personal best, and I, I came 12th out of whatever it was, 30 riders, 12th in Europe, which was by far the best result I'd ever had. So I was absolutely delighted. Um, 
and it just shows how far, like for GB now, a you wouldn't have gone out, they wouldn't yeah. have sent you, you know, and B you'd have had a full support team, and twelfth place in the Europeans would have been deemed to be an absolute disaster. But but <laughs> well, for me, you have to have your cast redone then when you got home. Or? Yeah, so I went back and sort of went into the hospital, and they sort of looked at it and it's like. <laughs> How did this happen? Oh, it just oh, funny um, story. Kind <laughs> of, uh, yeah. It's um, ooh, yeah. It fell off. Will you believe that? No, no. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so I had to get a recast. But when you're younger, your bones heal so much quicker, and yeah. it, it didn't. It really didn't take long. They said actually, it has knitted pretty well, and and you know you've you've not damaged it any further. So yeah, I wouldn't recommend it, but it was all right. It was all right in the night. But yeah. So in terms of sorry, going back to you, we kind of went on a bit of a deviation there. I was asking you about. Oh, it's good. It's people, true. you. Um, I want to. I want to know if you've been intimidated when you've in interviews when you've you're whether it's athletes or managers. Yeah. Have you ever been? Is there anyone that's scary to talk to or intimidating? Have you ever interviewed Alex Ferguson? For no, I, ha- I haven't. I haven't interviewed him, but I, I've seen him in person. I saw him at entry in the unsaddling enclosure at the Grand National and, and you could tell there was this presence. And while he was laughing and joking, he still looked terrifying at the same time, but I didn't actually speak to him. I've had a few, I've had a few interviews go wrong. Uh, actually, one of your old teammates, I, Mark Cavendish, who's one of my favourite interviews actually because I think he's really, really interesting. But I, one of the first times I was doing cycling, I went out to Tour de France and he must have been, Jeez, which team would it be? Someone like Columbia or who was yeah. it? Yeah, would, yeah. So yeah, yeah. So, so back, HTC. Yeah, so back then I think it must have been, and um, I can't remember what I asked him, but it clearly annoyed him. And I'm somehow sitting opposite him with a few other journalists there, but then loads of people around us, and he just loses his temper and starts absolutely effing and blinding at me. And I'm like, what the hell's happened? And everyone's looking at me like I'm I'm in the wrong. So I tried to talk and be reasonable about it. And I think I got through it in the end. Which was odd because then the next time I interviewed him, I had one of the best interviews, did a thing for Podium Magazine. I don't think it exists anymore. And he wore loads of different retro kit and changed in and out of it, did this amazing photo shoot. And he loved it. And he was sweetness and light. So I had the, he sort of been one of my favorite, one of my least favorite interviews. And the other one that springs to mind just on that question was I went to interview Derek Chisora at some gym in somewhere in southwest London. It was a random place. And anyway, he pulls up in some massive SUV, you know, top of the range thing, but pulls up in like a really tatty dressing gown with holes in it. And he's quite a big presence. You know, there are some bigger boxes, but he's a big presence. And the whole way through the interview, he's just like, just yes, no, yes, no, not answering anything, getting closer and closer to me and more no. sort of threatening, like leaning into my face. I'm like, this is weird. And the PR person that's sitting there is a bit like, uh, and so I just thinking, this is unbelievably rude. And so I just go, uh, this isn't going to work. I just don't understand the point. At which point he sort of flings the chair back, stands up dramatically, leans over me. I'm thinking, oh, God, oh I, my don't, God. I don't want to get punched in an interview. And then bursts out laughing, thinks it's the funniest thing ever, sits down and then is good value for 10 minutes afterwards. But I definitely, my heart was absolutely racing at that point. So was he was he doing that on purpose, like pretending to, to try and scare you? And he was always going to go, ha, just joking. I don't or know if he's just mad or what he is. Like, I mean, he's wow. had, a, there's been a few stories of he's, you know, he's a maverick character, but I definitely felt mm. threatened then. Um, there's probably a few different points, um, but those are the two that immediately spring to mind. I think you, when you, like boxers, there's something about just the nature of their sport and the confrontational aspect to it. that it's. I've not met many boxers. I met, I did an interview with Lennox Lewis, um, for a BBC Scotland programme we did a few years ago about how, how to win gold. It was interviewing champions and their their mindset mm-hmm. and their approach. And 
yeah, you just it's like I think it, it's a bit like when you see like a big cat or a, a, a wild animal, yeah, and you see them and they look, they're, they're just all calm and they're walking around. And you think, what a beautiful creature! It, you know, they're amazing to look at, but you just know that they yeah. could just you got to treat them with with respect. You think, my God, he's he's all friendly and chatty and smiling and showing nice you know nice set of teeth and asking about the family and stuff. But you think you wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of them. You know, they're just when you see them in action and how violent and how yeah powerful they are. Boxers can be, or any of the the, the fighters. It's like uh, did, you don't wonder, want to be on the wrong side. Did you ever get in a row in an interview with a journalist? Did that ever happen? Because you weren't didn't ever seem to be easily riled. You always well, when we had things, or did you have some clashes at some point? I think that there's times when you get frustrated with. No, I don't think I ever lost lost my temper. Um, I used to, I think that we're lucky because in the early years, like when I was competing at the top level, before, certainly up to maybe Beijing, the only journalists who ever came to interview you were well-educated about the sport. They were right. interested in the sport. They'd followed it from, you know, the days of when British cycling were coming 12th mm -hmm. in the European Championships to, to now winning gold medals. So you had the likes of Richard Moore there. You had the people who... Yeah, had been on like that journey William with you. Fotheringham and people. Will like Fotheringham, yeah, exactly. Yeah. These and and they were, they were knowledgeable. They were respectful. They, you know, you'd seen articles they'd written. They wouldn't stitch you up, but they wouldn't. You know, they weren't pulling punches. They would, if you hadn't performed well, or if there's a reason why you should be criticised, they would criticise you. But it was fair and it was mm. balanced reporting, and and therefore you trusted them to to do interviews with, and you would be open and honest with them. And you knew there wouldn't be a you know a random headline to try and get clickbait, and then and then your sport becomes you know wider. The wider population starts to to become aware of it after Beijing, and then you get this completely different um, section of the this journalistic world who are coming in and asking you questions that you know, um, well, just random things. I remember getting having an interview for one of the tabloids for uh, you know, be half an hour. At the end of it, as we're walking out, he's like, so where do you keep your medals then? You know, it was after Beijing, the three gold medals. I said, oh, I said, what do you mean? I, I wear them all the time. I don't take them off. And he sort of jokingly, and he's like, all oh, right, well, even when you're sleeping, what does what, what your girlfriend think? Well, my wife, but my girlfriend back then. And um, I was like, oh, she loves it. You know, just it's like, doesn't, doesn't matter. It's like, as if like, you know, I'm just, you know, she doesn't mind me having the medals clanging around my neck when I'm in, sleeping in bed. So and then the headline was um, oh, basically along the lines of "Hoy wears medals in bed for a girlfriend" and, and all this stuff, and put a picture of Sarah in you know in this newspaper. And I was just like, "Oh my god!" And I hadn't been going out with her that long at that stage. You know, we maybe what, what did she two. What did she say when she saw it? Well, she was. I think she was just like, "Wow, this is." She was sort of found the funny side, but yeah. equally, it's a it's a very cheap lesson to find out. You know, you kind of go right, okay, it's not a bad thing. It's not a horrendous. You yeah. know, it's not. You see some of the athletes who, you know, suddenly become successful. They win a gold medal, and the, the media want to know everything about the background. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, it's a, a, a strange family member pops up, or you know, and it, really nasty stuff, which you, you just think you feel really sorry for them having to go through that. For me, that was about as bad as it got. Were you but careful yeah. not to make jokes again? Well, you you yeah. are. I think that's why, like Andy Murray, you think about Andy with the whole "anyone but England" quote mm -hmm. that he gave. Mm -hmm. It was exactly the same thing. You know, he'd been in this interview. Um, from what I understand, and he'd been chatting for half an hour, and the whole way through, the journalist had been making jokes about the Scotland football team, sort of trying to get a bite from him. And then on the way out, he said, "So you'd be watching, or who you'd be supporting um, when England are playing next week, or whatever." And he said, "Well, 
anyone but England kind of thing. Just just a bit of a joke, you know, lighthearted. And he's like, got in. And that, that was it. And that, for, for that so followed long, him for ages, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, it did. Yeah. It took a long, long time for Andy to, to kind of shake that off and for people to start to see the real person and actually go, yeah, he, he's he's not who they portrayed him to be. And and but I feel I felt really sorry for him. And I think that's what made him more guarded with the media. Yeah. And then it became this sort of self-perpetuating thing where the less he talked, the the more they wanted to paint him in the way that they saw him. But it's it's easily done and I, it is a hard it's a hard way to you know you've got to get the balance right. You still got to be open enough to give information and trust yeah. them. But you you know you have a bad experience and it it puts you on your guard and then, and then the more guarded you are, the less the journalists are likely to kind of want, or they, they, then they've nothing to talk about. So they try and make up stories to, to mm. fill the, the column inches. One, one thing, a sporting thing I wanted to ask about, and I can't remember which episode we were on and, and, and you, you mentioned that I'd never heard it. And then unfortunately then we moved on, but it's one thing I wanted to bring back was the naked lap. You said there's, <laughs> there, there is a record for a naked lap at most. Uh, tracks. Yes. Is, is that, is that genuinely true? Um, I don't really know if it's most tracks, certainly wherever, I don't know if it's just a phenomenon in our team. Right. Like, it started off in my club's city of Edinburgh racing club at Meadowbank once a year, maybe once every two years, you'd get a day at Meadowbank that wasn't absolutely freezing cold. It would be like, you know, 21 degrees. We'd be getting absolutely sunburned in the track centre. But the taps were off, as we would say in Scotland. Taps off. Um, everyone's tops are off. We're all enjoying the sunshine. And then someone would take it too far and go, right, I'm going to set <laughs> I'm gonna set the naked flying lap record. So they'd be on the track with a, an aero helmet, a pair of shoes, and nothing else, and um, <laughs> and it was quite a sight to behold. These, yeah, very very pale buttocks, um, <laughs> <laughs> and you would try and be careful. How you, yeah, you wouldn't do it out the saddle. You'd make sure you were sitting down, um, get get in the saddle properly before you started your effort. But yeah, it was. I never did it. I, it was one of these things. I thought, do you know what? Just imagine crashing, or imagine having, imagine oh. crushing. Crushing your testicles in the saddle, um, <laughs> having to explain that one. To, That'd be an awkward for injury. Yeah, exactly. So why have you had to withdraw from the, uh, the World Championship team? Well, yeah, it was a naked flying record attempt. Um, sat down awkwardly and, yeah, I might have actually. That, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't exist now in the days of all these cameras and... Um, no. No, exactly. Uh, you know, on exactly. the mobiles and social media and stuff, you wouldn't think that the flying lap could, yeah. naked flying lap could exist. But so I love the idea that did, yeah. Maybe it's not a bad thing. All these cameras everywhere. Then was it just was it just the Brits that did it? Did you hear of other well, nations doing it? Or? I think the Germans love a bit of nudity, don't they? Yeah. I'm sure, they, the Germans must. Have. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember. Yeah, numerous times in Germany. Well, even in the training camps out there, and uh, this the German team would be in the gym at the same time as us, and um, one of the guys was doing the, the kind of hanging crunches where your feet are hooked under the bars and you're, you're crunching up, and uh, one of his teammates just came in. Whipped his shorts. So he was hold, holding a medicine ball, so he couldn't get about it. So put the shorts up while he's dangling there. He slowly put the ball down and then lift himself back up. And then cover yeah. your balls. Yeah, yeah exactly. But um, no, there's not a massive amount of that um, <coughs> anymore, thanks to the camera phones. So well done, camera phones. Yeah, ruining all the fun. Spoiling the fun for everyone. Well, um, what about you? Do, you? do you ever get any, you know, nude interviews where you're, you and your journalistic friends... I don't. I can't think of anything no. like that. Are you? I imagine you sitting there right now with your the bottom half completely naked. Um, I've definitely done. I've done different interviews where I've been smartly dressed. Where I had to be smart in a shirt and tie, and I've just been in shorts and flip flops below. I've done that. I've done that a bit, but I've never. I've never gone full nudity. I don't think for an interview. Maybe. Maybe we'll do that for next week. Good. Good. 
Well, God, yeah, before we, we didn't really touch on it massively, but your actual sporting experiences as a kid. What What is the happiest you've been in sport, competing God, in sport, taking part in sport? So, that's such a hard one to answer. I just loved playing sport. didn't matter where it was. So when I was little, we lived in... So I've lived in different places. I was born in France, then we moved to Hong Kong, then Canada. And Canada was where I first started doing sports. So my sports were like baseball and skiing, which is amazing things to be able to do. And I couldn't, you know, I couldn't get, we'd go skiing twice a week in the winter. You know, as your PE lesson was to go skiing and then at the weekend you'd go again. And that was great fun and doing baseball. I remember, I remember vividly doing those things and absolutely lo- loving that aspect. And then, because my dad was a journalist as well, um, but like a proper journalist sort of, foreign correspondent doing not like you Matt not, proper, proper not, journalist not, not writing not a hobby journalist um, so so we would travel around and as a result we were travelling every three years so I ended up going to boarding school and the great thing about boarding school it was there was sport perpetually so from the age of eight I remember playing cricket uh, holding it like a baseball the first time I ever first night at, at boarding school and everyone you know had this Canadian accent then and people were like <laughs> who, who is this idiot but I quickly learned how to play that so I just loved the ch- that, and then at secondary school that you could play sport the whole time it was always there on tap you know whether that be just kicking a rugby ball with friends or a football around or just barge yard cricket so it's, it's a sort of concreted bit and you just hurl down a, a you know tennis ball or a cricket ball and, and hit that I used to love I think those are my happiest moments just playing sport with your mates where it doesn't really matter i mean it matters enormously in that moment you're the one batting or you're the one bowling and it seems really important but it doesn't matter you know it's just the first thing in that but i used to love it I totally get that because i remember just that feeling of watching the clock in school waiting for the bell to ring and you would run straight out yeah. and you just pick teams straight away as fast as you could or even better if it was a class take on if there was going to be a class take on and it was you know the word had spread someone from your class has spoken to someone else in another class We've got a class tape on at lunch. Everyone's in, right? You know, eat your lunch as fast as you can, straight outside, and you'd start. And it would be like, you know, the bell would ring for the end of lunch, and it'd be like 28, 27, you know, these, <laughs> and there'd be like 30 people at each team, and you'd be just punching folk out the way, and it'd be more like rugby than it would be football. But it was, um, I, I just used to love those moments of, yeah, when you, you're just totally immersed in the sport and you're having fun with your friends. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. Was sport number one rugby for you then, or no? Uh, yeah. Football as in primary school in the playground, yeah. Um, whilst doing BMX out of school, yeah. Um, rugby in school, um, bit of athletics as well. Did a bit of sprinting, a little bit of cross country, and then I did rowing as well from oh. for a couple of years when I got a bit taller towards the end of my school years. So I was, I wasn't that tall. I was tall in primary school, and then I kind of developed late and grew late. So it was maybe when I was about fifteen or sixteen. That I, was, I wasn't playing rugby because I, I was doing too much cycling, and I thought, well, I can do rowing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a sort of a, a school sport I can do, and that taught me a huge amount. I mean, it was great fun, but in terms of dealing with pain on the, you know, the training is brutal for rowing. Yeah. Very similar to cycling, and and you know, you're in that environment where everybody was pushing themselves hard, and there was a, a really committed coach, and it was. Yeah, I learned a lot from the rowing. Were you in a, a four, a pair, or an eight? Yeah, what was the sort well, of- I started out in a four. And then I was in the kind of B4 because the A4 already was already set up. So we set up this other new crew and, and then I got into the A crew after a year or so. And, and then I rode in a pair with my, um, Grant Florence, who's my best, best man. I was his best man. He was my best man. He's about five foot six. <laughs> so he, he was the tallest guy 
in the year or until this guy in our class in my first year, you know, when we were 12, 13. And then everyone took off. And he had a moustache and, you know, <laughs> hairy legs and all that. And uh, he was like a fully grown man. And he just, that was his height. And um, so that he was picked immediately in, in for, oh, you'll be good for rowing. So they put him in rowing. And as everyone started to get taller and taller, he had to work harder and harder. And he, yeah. his, his work ethic and his, he trained as hard as any athlete that I, you know, competed against or with, uh, you know, in, in professional sport. He was, he worked so hard. I mean, sort of, we were both smaller and lighter than the other two in the four. So we, we used to race in the pair together. And we got to be raced for Scotland in the junior pairs in 1993. Um, we got second in the national champ, the British nationals against oh, wow. all the big English clubs. Uh, I think Marlowe won it. We were second. And yeah, Scottish champion. So yeah, it was, we were technically quite good and we could work. We worked really hard. Like we, were, we were kind of very high rating and technically good, but we didn't have the big, long, powerful strokes that some of the... Did you ever toy with it as an option or did you think you were never going to quite have it? To... I, I, I was never going to be tall enough to do it um, at a higher level and I wasn't good enough, really. You know, it was right. one of these I, I really enjoyed it and we had fun and we raced, as I say, raced for Scotland at Strathclyde Park, but that was that was as far as I went. Grant took it on. He did it. He went to... Um, we raced at Henley, Um you know, and, and yeah, again, he was, I guess you just kind of make up for what he didn't have in that full long yeah. stroke. He was very technically good. And yeah, it's, it's never, it's high. never appealed ever since going to Caversham where the GB rowers are and seeing the suffering that they put through. I mean, I don't know how you tear who works the hardest of athletes, but some of their training is on the ergo, on the rowing machines oh. is, is, is horrific. Yeah. I mean, is. they look absolutely ruined. I mean, I'm sure it's, it's the same with the cycling, but. It's, do you know what's funny is it's a bit like cycling, even at the, the kind of amateur level, the club level, you have to, it's not something you can just turn up and have a kick about and have some fun mm. with. The fun comes from almost the, the hard work. And then, there, you know, you, the more you, the harder you work, the better you get. So if you want to enjoy it and go faster, you have to put the work in. And it, I think it attracts a certain type of person with that, that kind of mindset of, yeah, I'm willing to commit here. And particularly when it's a team sport and you've got to be there all at the same time. If, if one of you doesn't turn up, you can't go out. You know, you, you rely on each other and you inspire each other you push each other on and, and it's I, I really learned a lot from rowing and so yeah i do i still love watching it was that was it henley this year um always watch it when it when the rowing's on the olympics or on the telly um so yeah it was never going to be a sport of mine but mm. I, I did enjoy it and learned a lot from it i love i love i'm amazed when you're at the olympics and you see you know whether they won gold silver or finish out the medals how wrecked they are oh in the boat afterwards, the effort they've put in for that point. I mean, they can barely catch their their breath, and they just look utterly, utterly spent. Like they couldn't have rowed another 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 stroke. I remember it was the national championships. The British nationals were up in Strathclyde, and I'd, I'd finished. We'd got the silver medal, and I was on. I think I had that rest the afternoon off. We were on the morning quite early, and they were asking if anybody wanted to go out on the launches. Or sorry, on the um, pontoons to do the got the terms where you basically hold the boat yeah. like the start line um there's a name for it and you're basically just sitting on this sort of floating um little pontoon for a few hours at a time they, they take you out in the boat drop you off and it was a glorious sunny day i thought yeah this would be fun you know get to watch the racing at the start and nobody showed me what to do so i'd only i'd only ever <laughs> experienced it from the other side where you're in the boat and you're um and you, you see know, someone doing it but, that's yeah, it. And you, but yeah. you don't really pay attention to what they're doing they, you see that they're holding the stern of the boat and that's kind of about it because the rest of your mind is taken up with watching the starter and listening to when he's about to say, you know, attention, set, go, and all that stuff. So you're lying on your flat on your stomach, holding the stern of the boat, 
and trying to tether it and hold it so they can, and the one side's backing up, one side's rowing to try and get the boat nice and straight. So once all the boats are in line, as soon as they're in line, the starter will raise a flag and he'll give the single and off they go. So what the mistake I made was that I, I've sort of fed the stern of the boat. As the, the waves are going, the boat's going up and down and the pontoon's going up and down. And I kind of fed the stern of the boat and under the pontoon. And I hadn't really considered that at the, at the end of the stern is the rudder. Is the little bit that pops up with the wires that go down to, to the footplate, and the, the 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 guy at the bow steers the boat. Anyway, as the starter announced the start of the race, and off they went. The bottom of this pontoon caught the the rudder in the boat and just ripped it straight off. And it was the I've forgotten which school it was. It, they were the hot favourites that had won that school had won the under eighteen you know God. quad for however many years it was like with their badge of honor and they were they'd qualified fastest and anyway this boat just then veers straight off <laughs> through the lanes onto the side and they have to stop and it's the final and I was just like oh my god that was my fault it was it wasn't an it, it was an accident but it wasn't it was completely avoidable if I'd known what yeah. the hell I was doing. So this so it'd probably be someone well you never know. You never know someone there, could there, be listening there, to this there, right there, now there, there will be now. Um, yeah. So I take it you were never asked back again. Well, that was kind of, I think, <laughs> I, I think it was, I don't even remember getting told off. I just remember it happening. And then the next race lined up, I thought, right, I won't do that again. Um, and did a few more. And then the time came to go. And I thought, I'll just keep my head down and not mention it. And, um, you know, so it's got just, away with it. Yeah. So I feel apologies. I really, I genuinely was absolutely oh. mortified and, and just felt so sorry for them because you know how much training they would have done for that one moment and uh, yeah did, did you have ever anyone screwing it up when they used to hold you for the start of races you all the time a, yeah all okay. the, so my dad messaged me watching the national <laughs> watching the world saying he said i'm so glad to see finally the uci have gone yeah. on to the fact that now the, the coaches are now allowed to hold the second mm -hmm. and third right so the starters in the start gate so you can't jump the gun and there's nothing you can, when you're holding behind, you can't push or give any sort of assistance. But if you're seen to do that, you would, they would yeah. disqualify. But the coach knows how to hold a rider up because you've got to get the balance absolutely right. Mm. In, the, in previous, you know, even Olympic Games, you're lining up at the start line and you could get some 75-year-old UCI, you know, delegate that's been there for, you know, that weighs 55 kilos and he's standing there trying to hold you straight and you're like this is the biggest race of my life and i can't so unprofessional you know, oh amazing, it's, yeah. and it's you know yeah it, it makes sense get the coaches they can hold you straight and yeah. there's no complaints then so you didn't you hadn't you had that in the latter bit of your career then um, like no, you didn't, you, didn't, you, didn't, you didn't have that at all, even. So it's only just changed now. Right. So oh, right, at these, right. these worlds, my dad, yeah, my dad says, "Oh, you noticed?" I was like, "Yeah, you're right, actually." Oh right, God, okay. So it's a very new thing. In the old days, it was always a random person, and and you'd often find out there'd be one that would be really, really bad, and you could see it. And as you're rolling up the start line, you're like, "Oh no, oh no, I've got the bad one. Oh no," and and you point, you're sort of pointing to say, "Lean me this way," you know, you're trying to line it up, and you're pointing. And there's like five seconds to go and the beats are started and you're still going straight up, oh straight up. God. Meanwhile, you're trying not to panic thinking, if I don't get off the start well here, I'm never going to get on the wheel and we're going to lose this Olympic gold medal. The, the other one is that I'm more interested by, a similar vein, is the Derny riders. Are there crap ones of that and mm. not? I mean, or is there or is there just, is it set at a speed? Yeah, it's they, they still have to do it themselves, but it's um, you, they tend to be experienced riders. So, they, so, so, it, so they're not going to screw it up and suddenly be yeah. completely the wrong pace again? Yeah, so the, the guy that was used at the Worlds in Glasgow last week is a guy called Paul Curran. Mm -hmm. um, he was, I think he was Commonwealth Games road race champion in 1982. Oh, right, um, cool. Or 86, was it? Um, 
anyway, he's he was a kind of legend of the road scene in the UK from the northeast of England, and he's he's the kind of go to Derny rider now. Um, I saw him actually on the way out from the velodrome this week, and uh, yeah, he does a great job. But when when they're kind of inconspicuous by they're doing a good job when no one notices yeah, them because yeah. they just they keep it really. Yeah. They know that after lap one, it's going to be 40 k's an hour, then it's going to be 45, and they've got to deliver at 55 k's an hour. And they'll have a little computer just with the speedo so they can monitor it. And yeah, it's it was back to the old the old petrol well, dernies, actually, at the world's last time. Have you had a go? Have you ever done it? Have you had a um, go? Not, not in no. competition, no. no. Mate, I quite fancy it. Yeah. I think the instinct would be just to keep going, though, and try and <laughs> win the race. <laughs> yeah. oh, so, that. <laughs> There's never been a renegade Derny rider that's done that, has there? I'd love to. Imagine, imagine yeah. at the Olympics. Yeah. Oh, that'd be brilliant. Out, out doing you or Jason Kenny or whoever it yeah. is. Or, um, yeah. Yeah, I'd quite like to see that. Yeah. Right. Well, listen, on that, yeah. on that note. There we go. Well, we've covered a few things. Head. That was fun. I really yeah. enjoyed that, Jim. Yeah, thanks. It's nice to. Um, Good to chat. Yeah, because normally we're just talking over each other, so it made a good choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we've got an exciting list of folk as well coming up. Yeah, we've we? got some really good ones. Don't yeah. want to say yet, but no. yeah, there's, there's a good four or five mm. next ones lined up. So, and, and a nice nice variation, I think, of mm. sort of different um, comedic or comedians yes. or whatever, actors, actresses, etc. So I think people are like the mix. And I would also just take this opportunity. I don't really know how, to, maybe through Twitter or Instagram, let us, anyone that's listening, if there's anyone listening, yeah. we don't even know if there is anyone at this stage, they might have all just switched <laughs> off, but if there's anyone listening, if you're out there, let us know what you enjoy listening to, let us know if there's anybody that you would like us to ask to come on the show, or anything in particular we want to talk about, um, and let us know what you think so far. Perfect. But don't, don't be too honest though. You know. Yeah, just just the nice comments. <laughs> be just have the nice yeah. comments. Yeah. Um, great stuff. Well, thanks for catching nice to catch up and stuff yeah. and we'll uh, we'll chatting again i think pretty soon so um yeah nice all right one. love Take it care, Take Cheers. Care. Bye. Bye. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.